Welcome to another classic story at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. It's great to have you with us. One of my favorite authors, and one which we'll be covering well in the coming weeks, is Charlotte Young. We did one of her stories already, The Last Days of the Colosseum, which provided incredible detail to the barbaric culture of the Roman Colosseum and the bravery of one unnamed Christian who put an end to it all. Her style of writing is clear and concise, and she really knows how to tell a story. You may have seen the movie The 300, which was a fictional account of the Battle of Thermopylae, meaning the Hot Gate, and if so, you'll have some knowledge of how the battle scene appeared. The battle was one of many in the Greco-Persian Wars, this one being a famous last stand, that of 500 Greek Spartan warriors, whose mission it was to defend a narrow, mountainous pass against a huge invasion of over 100,000 Persian soldiers. The story has all the elements of a great drama, with bold leaders, huge armies, treachery, and incredible bravery. And nobody tells it better than Charlotte Young. And now, The Pass of Thermopylae, by Charlotte Young. B.C. 430 There was trembling in Greece. The great king, as the Greeks called the chief potentate of the East, whose domains stretched from the Indian Caucasus to the Aegis, from the Caspian to the Red Sea, was marshalling his forces against the little free states that nestled amid the rocks and gulfs of the eastern Mediterranean. Already had his might devoured the cherished colonies of the Greeks on the eastern shore of the archipelago, and every traitor to home institutions found a ready asylum at that despotic court and tried to revenge his own wrongs by whispering incitements to invasion. All people, nations, and languages was the commencement of the decrees of that monarch's court, and it was scarcely a vain boast, for his satraps ruled over subject kingdoms, and among his tributary nations he counted the Chaldean. He counted the Chaldean with his learning and old civilization, the wise and steadfast Jew, the skillful Phoenician, the learned Egyptian, the wild freebooting Arab of the desert, the dark-skinned Ethiopian, and over all these ruled the keen-witted, active native Persian race, the conquerors of all the rest, and led by a chosen band proudly called the Immortal. His many capitals, Babylon the Great, Susa, Persopolis, and the like, were names of dreamy splendor to the Greeks, described now and then by Ionians from Asia Minor who had carried their tribute to the king's own feet or by courtier slaves who had escaped with difficulty from being all too serviceable at the tyrannic court. And the lord of this enormous empire was about to launch his countless host against the little cluster of states, the whole of which together would hardly equal one province of the huge Asiatic realm. Moreover, it was a war not only on the men, but on their gods. The Persians were zealous adorers of the sun and of fire. They abhorred the idol worship of the Greeks and defied and plundered every temple that fell in their way. Death and desolation were almost the best that could be looked for at such hands. Slavery and torture from cruelly barbarous masters would only too surely be the lot of numbers should their land fall a prey to the conquerors. True it was that ten years back, the former great king had sent his best troops 
to be signally defeated upon the coast of Attica, but the losses at Marathon had but stimulated the Persian lust of conquest, and the new king Xerxes was gathering together such myriads of men as should crush down the Greeks and overrun their country by mere force of numbers. The muster place was at Sardis, and there Greek spies had sent the multitudes assembling, and the state and magnificence of the king's attendants. Envoys had come from him to demand earth and water from each state in Greece, as emblems that land and sea were his. But each state was resolved to be free, and only Thessaly, that which lay first in his path, consented to yield the token of subjugation. A council was held at the Isthmus of Corinth, and attended by deputies from all states of Greece to consider of the best means of defense. The ships of the enemy would coast round the shores of the Aegean Sea. The land army would cross the Hell's Point on a bridge of boats lashed together and march southwards into Greece. The only hope of averting the danger lay in defending such passages as, from the nature of the ground, were so narrow that only a few persons could fight hand to hand at once, so that courage would be of more avail than numbers. The first of all of these passes was called Tempe, and a body of troops was sent to guard it, but they found that this was useless and impossible, and came back again. The next was at Thermopylae. Look in your map of the archipelago, or Aegean Sea, as it was then called, for the great island of Negropont, or by its old name, Euboea. It looks like a piece broken off from the coast, and to the north is shaped like the head of a bird, with the beak running into a gulf that would fit over it. Upon the mainland, and between the island and the coast, is an exceedingly narrow strait. The Persian army would have to march round the edge of the gulf. They could not cut straight across the country, because the ridge of mountains called Sita rose up and barred their way. Indeed, the woods, rocks, and precipices came down so near the seashore that in two places there was only room for one single wheel track between the steeps and the impassable morass that formed the border of the gulf on its south side. These two very narrow places were called the Gates of the Pass and were about a mile apart. There was little more width left in the intervening space, but in this there were a number of springs of warm mineral water, salt and sulfurous, which were used for the sick to bathe in, and thus the place was called Thermopylae, or the Hot Gates. A wall had once been built across the westernmost of these narrow places, when the Thessalians and Phocians, who lived on either side of it, had been at war with one another. But it had been allowed to go down to decay, since the Phocians had found out that there was a very steep, narrow mountain path along the bed of a torrent, by which it was possible to cross from one territory to the other without going round this marshy coast road. It was, therefore, an excellent place to defend. The Greek ships were all drawn up on the further side of Euboea to prevent the Persian vessels from getting into the strait and landing men beyond the pass, and a division of the army was sent off to guard the hot gates. The council at the Isthmus did not know of the mountain pathway and thought that all would be safe as long as the Persians were kept out of the coast path. The troops sent for this purpose were from different cities, and amounted to about 4,000, who were to keep the pass against two millions.
The leader of them was Leonidas, who had newly become one of the two kings of Sparta, the city that above all in Greece trained its sons to be hardy soldiers, dreading death infinitely less than shame. Leonidas had already made up his mind that the expedition would probably be his death, perhaps because a prophecy had been given at the temple of Delphi that Sparta should be saved by the death of one of her kings of the race of Hercules. He was allowed by law to take with him three hundred men, and those he chose most carefully, not merely for their strength and courage, but selecting those who had sons, so that no family might be altogether destroyed. These Spartans, with their helots or slaves, made up his own share of the numbers, but all the army was under his generalship. It is even said that the three hundred celebrated their own funeral rites before they set out, lest they should be deprived of them by the enemy, since, as we have already seen, it was the Greek belief that the spirits of the dead found no rest till their obsequies had been performed. Such preparations did not daunt the spirits of Leonidas and his men, and his wife, Gorgo, who was not a woman to be faint-hearted or hold him back. Long before, when she was a very little girl, a word of hers had saved her father from listening to a traitorous message from the king of Persia, and every Spartan lady was bred up to be able to say to those she best loved that they must come home from battle with the shield or on it, either carrying it victoriously or borne upon it as a corpse. When Leonidas came to Thermopylae, the Phocians told him of the mountain path through the chestnut woods of Mount Sita, and begged to have the privilege of guarding it on a spot high up on the mountainside, assuring him that it was very hard to find at the other end, and that there was every probability that the enemy would never discover it. He consented, and encamping around the warm springs, caused the broken wall to be repaired, and made ready to meet the foe. The Persian army were seen covering the whole country like locusts, and the hearts of some of the southern Greeks in the pass began to sink. Their homes in the Peloponnesus were comparatively secure. Had they not better fall back and reserve themselves to defend the Isthmus of Corinth? But Leonidas, though Sparta was safe below the Isthmus, had no intention of abandoning his northern allies and kept the other Peloponnesians to their posts, only sending messengers for further help. Presently, a Persian on horseback rode up to reconnoiter the pass. He could not see over the wall, but in front of it, and on the ramparts, he saw the Spartans, some of them engaged in active sports, and others in combing their long hair. He rode back to the king and told him what he had seen. Now, Xerxes had in his camp an exiled Spartan prince named Demeritus, who had become a traitor to his country and was serving as counselor to the enemy. Xerxes sent for him and asked whether his countrymen were mad to be thus employed instead of fleeing away. But Demeritus made answer that a hard fight was no doubt in preparation and that it was the custom of the Spartans to array their hair with special care when they were about to enter upon any great peril. Xerxes would, however, not believe that so petty a force could intend to resist him and waited four days, probably expecting his fleet to assist him. But as it did not appear, the attack was made. The Greeks, stronger men and more heavily armed, were far better able to fight to advantage than the Persians with their short spears and wicker shields and beat them off with great ease. It is said that Xerxes three times leapt off his throne in despair at the sight of his troops being driven backwards. 
and thus for two days it seemed as easy to force a way through the Spartans as through the rocks themselves. Nay, how could slavish troops dragged from home to spread the victories of an ambitious king, fight like freemen who felt that their strokes were to defend their homes and children. But on that evening, a wretched man named Ephialtes crept into the Persian camp and offered for a great sum of money to show the mountain path that would enable the enemy to take the brave defenders in the rear. A Persian general named Hydarnas was sent off at nightfall with a detachment to secure this passage and was guided through the thick forests that clothed the hillside. In the stillness of the air, at daybreak, the Phocian guards of the path were startled by the crackling of the chestnut leaves under the tread of many feet. They started up, but a shower of arrows were discharged on them, and forgetting all save the present alarm, they fled to a higher part of the mountain and the enemy, without waiting to pursue them, began to descend. As day dawned, morning light showed the watchers of the Grecian camp below a glittering and shimmering in the torrent bed where the shaggy forests opened. But it was not the sparkle of water, but the shine of gilded helmets and the gleaming of silvered spears. Moreover, a Sumerian crept over to the wall from the Persian camp with tidings that the path had been betrayed that the enemy were climbing it and would come down beyond the eastern gate. Still, the way was rugged and circuitous. The Persians would hardly descend before midday, and there was ample time for the Greeks to escape before they could be shut in by the enemy. There was a short council held over the morning sacrifice. Magistius, the seer, on inspecting the entrails of the slain victim, declared, as well as he might, that their appearance boded disaster. Him Leonidas ordered to retire, but he refused, though he sent home his only son. There was no disgrace to an ordinary tone of mind in leaving a post that could not be held, and Leonidas recommended all the allied troops under his command to march away while yet, while yet the way was open. As to himself and his Spartans, they had made up their minds to die at their post, and there could be no doubt that the example of such a resolution would do more to save Greece than their best efforts could ever do if they were careful to reserve themselves for another occasion. All the allies consented to retreat, except the eighty men who came from Mycenae and the seven hundred Thespians, who declared that they would not desert Leonidas. There were also four hundred Thebans who remained, and thus the whole number that stayed with Leonidas to confront two million of the enemies were 1,400 warriors. Leonidas had two kinsmen in the camp, like himself, claiming the blood of Hercules, and he tried to save them by giving them letters and messages to Sparta. But one answered that he had come to fight, not carry letters, and the other that his deeds would tell all that Sparta wished to know. Another Spartan, named Dionysus, when told that the enemy's archers were so numerous that their arrows darkened the sun, replied, so much the better, we shall fight in the shade. Two of the three hundred had been sent to a neighboring village, suffering severely from a complaint in the eyes. One of them, called Eurytus, put on his armor and commanded his helot to lead him to his place in the ranks. The other, called Aristodemus, was so overpowered with illness that he allowed himself to be carried away with the retreating allies. It was still early in the day when all were gone, and Leonidas gave the word to his men 
to take their last meal. Tonight, he said, we shall sup with Pluto. Hitherto, he had stood on the defensive and had husbanded the lives of his men, but he now desired to make as great a slaughter as possible so as to inspire the enemy with dread of the Grecian name. He therefore marched out beyond the wall without waiting to be attacked, and the battle began. The Persian captains went behind their wretched troops and scourged them on to the fight with whips. Poor wretches! They were driven on to be slaughtered, pierced with the Greek spears, hurled into the sea, or trampled into the mud of the morass. But their inexhaustible numbers told at length. The spears of the Greeks broke under hard service, and their swords alone remained. They began to fall, and Leonidas himself was among the first of the slain. Hotter than ever was the fight over his corpse, and two Persian princes, brothers of Xerxes, were there killed. But at length word was brought that Hydarnus was over the pass, and that the few remaining men were thus enclosed on all sides. The Spartans and Thespians made their way to a little hillock within the wall, resolved to let this be the place of their last stand. But the hearts of the Thebans failed them, and they came towards the Persians, holding out their hands in entreaty for mercy. Quarter was given to them, but they were all branded with the king's mark as untrustworthy deserters. The helots probably at this time escaped into the mountains, while the small, desperate band stood side by side on the hill still fighting to the last. Some with swords, some with daggers, others even with their hands and teeth, till not one living man remained amongst them when the sun went down. It was only a mound of slain, bristling over with arrows. 20,000 Persians had died before that handful of men. Xerxes asked Demeritus if there were many more at Sparta like these, and was told, there were 8,000 more. It must have been with a somewhat failing heart that he invited his courtiers from the fleet to see what he had done to the men who dared oppose him and showed them the head and arm of Leonidas set up upon a cross. But he took care that all his own slain, except 1,000, should first be put out of sight. The body of the brave king was buried where he fell, as were those of the other dead. Much envied were they by the unhappy Aristodemus, who found himself called by no name but the coward, and was shunned by all his fellow citizens. No one would give him fire or water, and after a year of misery, he redeemed his honor by perishing in the forefront of the Battle of Plataea, which was the last blow that drove the Persians ingloriously from Greece. The Greeks then united in doing honor to the brave warriors who, had they been better supported, might have saved the whole country from invasion. The poet Simonides wrote the inscriptions that were engraved upon the pillars that were set up the pass to commemorate this great action. One was outside the wall, where most of the fighting had been. It seems to have been in honor of the whole number who had for two days resisted. It read, Here did four thousand men from Pelops land against three hundred myriads bravely stand. In honor of the Spartans was another column. Go, traveler, to Sparta tell that here, obeying her, we fell. On the little hillock of the last resistance was placed the figure of a stone lion in memory of Leonidas, so fitly named the lion-like. And Simonides 
at his own expense, erected a pillar to his friend, the seer Magistius. The great Magistius tomb you here may view, who slew the Medus fresh from Spurtius' forge. Well the wise seer the coming death foreknew, yet scorned he to forsake his Spartan lords. The names of the three hundred were likewise engraved on a pillar at Sparta. Lions, pillars, and inscriptions have all long since passed away. Even the very spot itself has changed. New soil has been formed, and there are miles of solid ground between Mount Sita and the Gulf, so that the hot gates no longer exist. But more enduring than stone or brass, nay, than the very battlefield itself, has been the name of Leonidas. 2,300 years have sped since he braced himself to perish for his country's sake in that narrow, marshy coast road, under the brow of the wooded crags, with the sea by his side. Since that time, how many hearts have glowed? How many arms have been nerved at the remembrance of the pass of Thermopylae and the defeat that was worth so much more than a victory? Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We release new episodes every Sunday night at about 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Join us at our newest show, Today's History Minute, where we provide a good news briefing on this day and how to make it special, along with a story about this day in history. And over at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, stories and interviews on all kinds of interesting subjects just keep on coming. Thanks for joining us. And send some reviews at Apple. They're always appreciated. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. <laughs>